Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, editor at large at slashfilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played the voice of Ron the Manager in Toy Story of Terror, the TV short. Stephen Tobolowski, how are you doing today, sir? Uh, David, it's been such a long, long time. And you know, doing Rom, what, was I Rom the manager? You were Rom the manager, so you were one of those roles where the uh, occupation is in the name of the role. That let, People may not understand what is involved with doing a Pixar project. When you do a project for Pixar, you are talking about working for years. Uh, in fact... Uh, Angus, uh, who was our producer on that, he was one of the fans of the Tobolowsky Files, which is, I think, how I got the job in the first place. But I think the first voice session we had for that was almost two years ago. And and then what you do is you record a voice, and they're not exactly sure how they're going to draw it. And then they begin to draw it the way your voice kind of helps shape the part. And then after they draw it, the voice doesn't fit what they draw, and they bring you back several months later to record again, and then they bring you back again. So it was a process that took two years, and you know some of those uh, Pixar films take like five years to do, and I completely understand why now. It, it's amazing. Oh yeah, all that attention to detail it uh, leads to a pretty solid product in the end. Usually, so usually it does. They know, and and you know, I I asked uh, some of the folks over at Pixar, what is the most important thing to you when you are creating a, a film, and what do you think they said, David? Uh, I would say the script. Well, sort of. They said the story. Right. The story, which is script tan- tangential. I mean, it is. It is. It is the story. They begin with a story that has a solid beginning, middle, and end and goes somewhere. Definitely. And they have like – if you find uh, – if you look on the internet for Pixar's rules of storytelling, you'll find a bunch of uh, pretty uh, solid rules by which you can adhere to for telling a story. But you wouldn't know anything about that, would you, Stephen? Not – no, I wouldn't. Well, oh, ladies Lord. and gentlemen, it has been uh, many months since the last episode of The Tobolowsky Files. Uh, we had plans, Stephen, to put out more episodes, and yep. those got uh, put on hiatus for a little bit while we sorted things out in uh, our own personal and professional lives. But we are back, and we're going to try our best to put out new episodes. Uh, and as a show of good faith, we are here with a new episode today. That uh, is correct. This, the Tobolowski Files, episode 60. That's what you're listening to right now. <sighs> Stephen, in the last few months, uh, we have had a number of adventures. Uh, we uh, were in Minneapolis recently to record uh, a live version of the show for Public Radio International. And I believe you were recently in Ireland. Is that correct? Well, to be truthful, I was in Dublin. Ireland is – we were only there for six, seven days. I taught – at uh, the factory, which is an acting school over there, and I also spoke at the Directors Guild. It was incredibly beautiful, incredibly dangerous driving on those roads. You know, David, they have road signs in Ireland, which I should have taken pictures of, but I didn't want the roaming charges on my phone. But there are these nondescript symbols that just say that sudden death is waiting around the corner. But but it was interesting teaching at, at the schools there because um, I I didn't think I would be so nervous, but I was because in a way you're walking into someone else's home, someone else's school. I was afraid of saying something or teaching something and acting in improv or comedy 
that would go against what the other people had learned. And teaching is very, very personal. I, I know thinking back, truthfully, our first teachers are our parents. And I can't speak for everyone, but my parents used a very old lesson plan. They were what you call children of the depression, and solving problems with money was not an option. My father worked selling newspapers with his brothers most of his young life, and David, he never had a birthday present. Dad had nine brothers and sisters, and there was no money for bicycles or baseball gloves or toys. A birthday present was a cake after supper, unless your birthday happened to fall on the Sabbath when baking was prohibited, and in that case, you got nothing that year. When we were little, Dad taught my brother Paul and me how to make baseballs out of old socks. And we loved our sock balls as kids, and not for sentimental reasons, like, oh gosh, these are what our dad used to play with because he was so poor. No, no. We loved them because they were good balls. They always had idiosyncrasies that gave us the home field advantage. If you hit one of those sock balls hard enough, it would flatten out like a prehistoric Frisbee and change its line of flight. And my brother Paul and I became experts in doing the calculus on the run and turning sure hits into sure outs. On one of his last visits to Los Angeles before he lost his vision, I saw Dad sitting on a bench in the backyard with a pile of old socks showing my son Robert, who was seven at the time, how to make a ball. Afterwards, they played catch. I watched from the window, and I got to tell you, it was better than the first time I saw The Sound of Music. The sock ball reared its head again just recently. I found it in a drawer with some of my old T-shirts. I pulled it out and I put it on the bed until I could find a more suitable home for it. Robert, who is now 24 years old, came upstairs and saw it. He picked it up and laughed and said, Oh man, here's that crazy sock ball granddad made with me. Clothing became a toy, an early study in transformation. I'm not claiming any causal link, but Robert has since become a scientist. Like a comet... The sock ball still has the power to amaze every time it cycles past the sun into another orbit through our lives. My mother taught us the lessons of the Depression in another way, with our wardrobe. We had none. Each of us kids got one pair of shoes a year. If our older shoes got a hole in them, Mom would take us to Dean Wilson, who would half-sole them, which is a professional shoe term for gluing something over the hole. Mom decided that this was borderline extravagant. It was reserved for our dress shoes. Loafers did not require professional repair. Mom would do it herself. She would have a stand on a piece of cardboard the dry cleaners used to pack with Dad's clean shirts, and she would trace our foot. Now, this was my favorite part of the process because it tickled. And she would cut out the cardboard foot and stick it in our shoe like an orthotic. The cardboard felt so good in my shoe, much better than the ground. I was always proud when I walked to school with my new cardboard. I remember showing Mark Wright the inside of my shoe on the playground. I asked how often he got new cardboard. I got a wide-eyed stare. Mark said he never got cardboard. 
we looked at each other in amazement, imagining probably for the first time what it was like to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. I'm not sure the lessons mom and dad thought they were conveying to us were the lessons we learned. For example, I don't think any of us kids grew up to be overly frugal. We grew up buying shoes and softballs without a second thought. This may be one of the fundamental weaknesses in education, that we are never teaching the lessons we think we are. For example, I was an exceptional student in first grade. I knew the letter Q on sight. I read the legendary Dick and Jane books with ease. I attribute my success to the homeschooling I got from my father. Dad was responsible for me learning the alphabet. Dad was a pediatrician. One of the best presents he ever gave me was a little chalkboard and a box of chalk. It was the literal blank slate that became anything I wanted it to be. Every morning before Dad headed out to his world of screaming, crying children, he wrote a letter on that chalkboard, and it was my job to find five words that started with that letter. I looked at newspapers and magazines with Mom. I wrote down the words on my chalkboard. I would practice using them with sentences. The letter X proved difficult. I think I would still have problems with it today. My mother read to me before my afternoon nap. Every night, either Mom or Dad would read me stories from a book of Grimm's fairy tales. Despite the nightmares, it was not surprising that I began to read on my own at a very early age. I made straight ones in Maddie Lee Smith's first grade class. The only blemish on my record was when I was too embarrassed to ask permission to go to the cloakroom where the toilet was located. That error in judgment led Mom to making an unscheduled run to the school with another pair of pants. Not my finest hour. There are a few times in life when you truly feel like a grown-up. First day at school, first beer, first trial membership for the AARP. We often forget a big one. The first day of second grade. For the first time, you are not the youngest one. You walk to class down a different wing of the school, further from the playground, closer to the library. In second grade, I was in Miss Cooper's class, and there were lots of new students. As it turned out, many of these boys and girls would be in my class for most of my elementary, junior high, and high school careers. Miss Cooper had a system of seating that involved two variables, height and the alphabet. If you were tall, you had to sit at the back of the class so the other students could see the blackboard. If you had a name that started with a letter near the end of the alphabet, you had to sit at the back of the class whether you were tall or not. The real-world application of the Cooper system was if you were short and your name was Zimmer, well, that was just too bad. Being a tall Tobolowsky, I was at the back of the room with eight girls and Kenneth Windsor. As second graders, we were given a whole new set of responsibilities. There was a whole new level of expectations. We weren't babies anymore. For the first time, we were given a long-term assignment. Besides our regular homework, we were to read ten books on our own. And these were not Dick and Jane books, which were thin enough to sling across the room like a Frisbee. These were thick, grown-up books. The first of the ten, Bucky Beaver Goes to New York, was 230 pages long. This was the war and peace of my second-grade world. 
Miss Cooper explained that we were to take the book home and read it. I missed the part of the explanation where she said, at your own pace. I thought it had to be read by the next day. It was one of the first times I broke into what would become known as a cold sweat. How would I ever be able to read this entire book by the next day? I went home and asked my brother Paul if such a thing was possible. He said in college you had assignments like that all the time. Being mercilessly overworked was a part of growing up. I gritted my teeth and set myself for the task. I began to read. I read all afternoon. I read all night. I woke up in the middle of the night and read. I read before breakfast. I tried to invent new speed reading techniques where you trade off an increase in page count for a moderate decrease in comprehension. From what I recall, the basic story was about a beaver that went to New York on a train. He wore a vest and talked to a conductor occasionally. It was essentially a work of fiction. There were several layers of implausibility I had to dig through. One, I knew beavers didn't like to travel. If they did, they would prefer to waddle in a stream, not take a train. And they didn't wear clothes, and of course, they didn't talk. The list went on and on. But I understood at the tender age of seven that this book was a metaphor. I was the beaver, or at least his sympathetic traveling companion. That morning at breakfast, I began to cry at the prospect of not finishing the book. Mom told me not to worry. She was sure I had read enough. Miraculously, in the car on the way to school, I turned the blessed page that said, The End. I had never worked so hard in my life, but I succeeded. I went into Miss Cooper's class, and predictably, at the beginning of class, the conversations turned beaverish. She asked, Did all of you read your books last night? The class murmured an audible, Yes, Miss Cooper. Miss Cooper smiled and said, How many of you read all of chapter one? All of the hands in the room, including mine, shot up in the air with enthusiasm, but my brain was perplexed. I mean, if you read the whole book, obviously you had to read the first chapter, right? Then Miss Cooper said, How many of you have read the second chapter? About half the class re-raised their hands. Just about then, I realized I had misunderstood the assignment. I didn't have to read the entire book after all. Miss Cooper continued her survey of the class. How many of you read the third chapter? Now there were only about a half a dozen of us with our hands still up in the air. I looked around the room. Some of my classmates were looking at me with envy, some with admiration. I kept a humble demeanor. If they only knew how much more they were about to admire me. I had been a success with straight ones in Maddie Lee Smith's class, and now I was about to be the number one student in Miss Cooper's class or more. I was probably going to be the number one student in the entire second grade or maybe the whole school, and all because I wasn't paying attention to the assignment. Miss Cooper asked, who's read four chapters? Now it was down to three. There was Claire Richards, the cute girl whose name began with an R and had to sit at the back of the room with me. The other hand belonged to an extremely tall girl named Amy who also sat on the back row. The class oohed and awed at our progress. Miss Cooper was very pleased. She asked Amy how much of the book she had read. Amy answered, Four chapters, Miss Cooper. And Claire, 
How much did you read? Claire said, I finished the fifth chapter and started the sixth. The class gasped with amazement. Miss Cooper quieted the class and faced me. And Stephen, how much did you read? The moment of truth had arrived. I was ready to astonish everyone with my progress. I read the whole book, Miss Cooper. The entire class started laughing. Miss Cooper's face suddenly turned into a scowl. Stephen, how dare you lie to this class? I was unprepared for the change of direction this conversation had taken. She began to walk down the road toward my desk. Are you doing this to get attention? I shook my head. Uh, no, ma'am, I'm not trying to get attention. Miss Cooper stared at me, deciding what course of action to take. She turned her back and walked to the front of the class and called out, Stephen, you come up here right now. I was weak with shock and embarrassment. I walked up to the front of the classroom. Miss Cooper said, I want you to face the class and apologize for lying to everyone. I didn't know what to say. I just quietly said, I'm not lying. The class broke out into laughter once again. Miss Cooper stared me straight in the face. Do you want to be sent to the office and get a spanking? Oh, my God, I thought. Capital punishment. I shook my head. Uh, no, ma'am. Then you apologize and you stand out in the hall for the rest of the period. I faced the class and said, I'm sorry. Miss Cooper nodded at her victory, which in this case amounted to the simple use of brute force. Now, go out into the hallway. I walked slowly out of the classroom and stood by the lockers. This was comparable to being pilloried in pilgrim times. The only people walking in the hallway were other teachers. They looked at me and marked my face in their book of future troublemakers. After 20 minutes or so, Miss Cooper came out into the hall. So, Stephen, did you read the book at all? I didn't speak for fear that I might cry. I just nodded. How much did you read? I didn't know what to say. I looked into Miss Cooper's unsympathetic eyes and said, The first chapter. She studied my face, unsure she even believed that. She said sternly, I will not have you making a spectacle of yourself in my class, and I will not tolerate lying. Uh, no, ma'am. You will finish all of Bucky Beaver Goes to New York before you move on to the second book. Yes, ma'am, I said. All right, you can go back and sit with the class. Yes, ma'am. I walked back into class, avoiding the gleeful eyes of some of the boys celebrating my misfortunes. I avoided looking at Claire Richards. She was a special person to me. Besides being cute, she could play the piano like nothing I had ever imagined. It hurt to be shamed in front of her. Mom picked me up from school that day. She asked me her standard, So, how was your day? I answered with my uncharacteristic lack of enthusiasm. Fine. Mom pushed me. Anything interesting happen in school? No. I figured since grown-ups were so used to doing nothing all day, she'd understand and just drop the subject. She did. That night, I couldn't sleep. It wasn't because of the events of the day. I had to wrestle with a new question, a question that took me completely by surprise. When do I say I finished the book? 
anything I came up with now would be another lie. I had to construct a slacker timeline out of thin air that I thought Miss Cooper would believe. This caused me considerable stress. I decided I would wait a couple of weeks before I said I was finished. That should be enough time. Then I would turn in the horrible book and move on to horrible book number two. But a funny thing happened. After a couple of weeks, I was afraid that it still wasn't the right amount of time to say the beaver made it to New York. So I waited longer. I waited a month. And then I waited some more. Finally, after six weeks, I told Miss Cooper I had finished. She looked at me with disdain and handed me the second book, which I never read. I turned it in a few weeks later, unopened. In fact, I never read another book in her class. When I moved on to third grade in Miss Murphy's class, I never read a book either. Or in fourth grade. You see, teachers can make a difference in a student's life. The Cooper system had put me at the back of the classroom by any criteria she cared to choose. Now, I recognize there are several layers of implausibility in this story. Why didn't Miss Cooper feel inclined to believe me? Why was it easy for her to call me a liar in front of the class rather than ask me a few simple questions like, What happened in the last chapter? Name five characters from the book. What is the first thing Bucky Beaver does when he gets to the big city? My assumption today with my adult brain would be that Miss Cooper had not read the book herself. But there's nothing intrinsically important about a beaver going to New York. It was just a metaphor. The most important part of education has very little to do with what we learn. The way we are taught is just as important. Anything can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. The world is nothing more than a collective vision that was formed one morning in a classroom. The Cooper system was not without value. It taught me the enormous power of a single negative act. It wasn't until I got to college and got a job reading books to a wealthy blind woman that I began enjoying reading again. Maybe I overreacted. Or maybe Miss Cooper was a better teacher than she ever imagined. Parents give you life, they give you a home and an education. They're also irritating. They're like wearing tight underpants when you ride a horse. Necessary, but still chafing. I spent all of my early years with Mom while Dad was at work. I went with her on her daily chores. For better or for worse, she provided my philosophical underpinnings. 
She would share little truisms about life all the time. I never knew what they meant. I'm pretty sure Mom had no idea what they meant either. Once we were in a grocery store. Mom dropped a can of tomato sauce. She picked it up and looked at me and shook her head and said, A stitch in time saves nine. For years, I had no idea what that meant. I just knew it had something to do with spaghetti. She would walk through the house holding a pile of folded laundry and stop in front of me and say, We should all be cats, and then walk on. I never knew what she meant. I would think on it all day. Was it the cats didn't have to do laundry, or was it the cats liked to sleep on clean laundry? I didn't know. Mom was my sphinx at Delphi. When I was six, I ran through a forest fire near our home. I didn't realize it could be so dangerous. At first, it was impressive seeing fire all around me. I had no idea how hot a forest could get. My tennis shoes began to melt. I was scared. Within a minute, there was fire all around me and no clear path to safety. The air was burning my throat. My eyes were watering from smoke. I couldn't see. I thought my only chance was to get down to the creek where we used to catch poisonous snakes. I was ready to take my chances with the water moccasins. I ran down the smoldering bank and jumped into the water. The creek put out my burning feet. There was less smoke near the surface of the water, and I followed the stream out of the fire area and ran home. Mom was horrified when she saw me. My shoes were ruined. My face was covered with soot. She asked me why I would walk through a fire. I told her because I thought it would be fun. Mom said I didn't even have horse sense. I asked her what horse sense was. She said, well, at least a horse knows what's what. Mom started to clean my face with a washcloth. She rubbed me hard as if the soot had become an unintentional part of my character that she wanted to banish forever. She was down to the second layer of skin before she murmured one of her axioms, self-preservation is the primary instinct. As it turned out, this was the statement Mom turned to more than any other. She used it all the time. She said it to herself when she read the newspaper. She used it as an explanation for the house of bricks when she told me the story of the three little pigs. She used it watching gladiator movies with me on Sunday afternoon. Just as the evil Atreus was about to stab the handsome Demetrius, Demetrius would rally and throw Atreus off a cliff. And mom would say, just goes to show you, Steppy Doors, self-preservation is the primary instinct. Side note. For the record. The second most popular saying used by mom was a quote she attributed to Ben Franklin. That, quote, all women are the same in the dark with a basket over their heads, end quote. Unfortunately, she used this one all the time, too. I'm not sure if Ben Franklin really said this or when and where mom heard it. The only thing I was sure of was mom had no idea what she was saying. She used it to comfort me when I had my heart broken in the 10th grade and in the 11th grade, and in the 12th grade. She pulled it out when I was in my 30s after Beth and I broke up. And she always delivered it with the deep reverence so richly deserved by Dr. Franklin. I finally had to put an end to the Ben Franklin quote one Thanksgiving. We were sitting around the table. Mom was putting out turkey and brisket and lima beans. One of Paul's boys was talking about a recent heartbreak. Mom heard this and said, it reminded her of something the great Ben Franklin said. I jumped out of my chair and said, hey, Mom, let me help you with those yams. 
I cornered her in the kitchen and said, Mom, you can't use the Ben Franklin quote anymore. I know what you think it means. Mom looked at me with a certain amount of concern. Why, yes, Stephen, that there are other fish in the sea. You can't let your heart be broken by one person. I know, Mom, I know, but but that's that's not what it means. Ben Franklin was saying that a woman doesn't have much to offer a man, that they're all the same with the lights out. I waited for Mom to get what I was saying. Nothing. I continued, Ben Franklin was saying, in jest, that a relationship with a woman is complete even if she has a basket over her head. Mom was still processing. That a woman, what she provides, is nothing intellectual but a very specific thing. A sudden, horrible dawning of recognition rose in Mom's eyes. Years of misguided quotation were coming home to roost. Mom almost fainted. Oh, no, Stephen, no, no. I've said that my whole life. I know, Mom, I know. It's fine. We all knew what you meant. But I think we could just let it go now. Mom was still distraught. Why would Ben Franklin say something like that? I don't know, Mom. I don't know. Mom looked off and ruminated. Well, they always said he was salty. Salty or otherwise, Mom continued quoting the wisdom of the ages. A fool and his money are soon parted. What goes up must come down. How sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. But still, the number one bit of wisdom Mom imparted on a regular basis was that self-preservation is the primary instinct. And I never had reason to doubt it. Whenever I was in a bad situation, I thought of my mother. I believed that whenever there was too much oncoming traffic, the human soul had a passing gear that would lead one to some kind of safety. In the mid-1980s, I had the beginning of a genuine resume. I had appeared on Broadway. Granted, it was for a short period of time. Okay, a few days, actually. But it was in a theater located in New York City on a street called Broadway. I acted in two feature films, Swing Shift, directed by Jonathan Demme, and The Philadelphia Experiment, starring The Vortex. I worked with one of the most popular stars in America, O.J. Simpson, and I was introduced to cocaine. At first, I was thrilled to find something that worked as effectively as a cup of coffee without giving you bad breath. Over the next few weeks, I became increasingly aware of its addictive quality. Beth and I had spectacular parties at our home. They became routine. Interesting people holding six-packs or bottles of wine would appear at our door. They came in and talked about art and theater. 24 to 48 hours later, they were lying naked in the backyard begging for mercy. If mercy were in short supply, they would settle for champagne. My mother had not come to Los Angeles since Beth and I moved into the house in the Hollywood Hills. She flew out for a quick visit without my father in tow. In preparation, I pulled myself together, tidied up the house, threw away any Coke vials I found, packed away the rolling papers. I did the wash. I swept the floor. I wanted to impress Mom that her steppy doors was doing well. He was standing on his own two feet after his fall into adulthood. We were going to have a small party the night Mom came into town, and I was fairly certain I could keep the evening low-key. The guests arrived. 
I introduced everyone to my mother, which I figured would be enough of a buzzkill to keep everything from slipping into a scene from the last days of the Roman Empire. It worked. The party took on the tone of a fundraiser for NPR. Mom was impressed. All of my bases were covered, except one. Me. During the course of the evening, I felt something in my upper breast pocket of my jacket that I had just thrown on. It was an unused vial of cocaine. I never knew I had it. It's one of the occupational hazards of buying cocaine. When you're high on cocaine, you lose track of where you put your cocaine. There's a prayer in the Jewish evening service called Ashkivenu. It was written sometime around 600 B.C., B.C.E., in Babylonia. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the Jewish homeland of Judah and the temple of Jerusalem. The entire nation was forced into exile. On the long road into the wilderness, people were filled with fear. Wild animals, robbers, starvation, disease, and the grief that comes from the collapse of everything you've known. This prayer asks for protection from these forces of evil. And there's a line that reads, Protect us from the obstacles that surround us. But the Hebrew word for surround doesn't just mean in front or behind. It also means from within. The most dangerous enemy we face comes from within. It moves unobserved. It comes upon us when we're most unprotected. I excused myself and went to the bedroom. I pulled out the vial. I thought about it. I thought it would be best to put it someplace safe, save it for later, wait till the party was over and mom was gone. But then why do that when I could have some now? I took a snort or two or four, just enough so I could look in the mirror and say, man, what are you doing? I came out of the bathroom full of energy and regret. I rejoined the party. It was obvious to most of my friends what I had done. It was enough of an inspiration for them to drop the manners and excuse themselves to various bathrooms as well. An hour later, the party was in full swing. Naked people were jumping into the pool. Strangers were showing up with bottles of liquor. People were making out in the living room. I kept steering mom away from scenes of spontaneous copulation. We ended up sitting on the front porch looking out at the night. Mom turned to me and then smiled with a certain amount of pride and approval. Stephen, I love your friends. They seem so happy. Yes, Mom, I said. They're good folks. They're happy most of the time. Mom held my hand and patted it. Her demeanor turned to concern. Stephen, are you happy? I was taken aback by Mom's question. Sure, Mom, I said. She held my hand tighter. Really? Are you happy? In an instant, I was defenseless. I became her little steppy doors. I try to be, Mom. I try to be. Well, you have so much to be happy about, she said. Your home is beautiful. I didn't know what to expect, but it's lovely. There's so much nature around here. I know, I know, I said. A coyote tried to eat me just the other day. Mom looked at me and smiled with no judgment. Remember, sweetheart. Whatever you do, your life is your life. Yes, ma'am. The moment was interrupted by a wild burst of laughter from the backyard. Mom looked into the night and sighed. 
as for the rest of it, it's a crazy, mixed-up world. Whenever I think of my mother, my mind goes back to the moment on the front porch. Any lesson she ever gave me about life pales beside the simplicity of, your life is your life. It has overtaken the Ben Franklin quote as the one piece of my mother's advice that stuck with me the longest. She was right about the world. Crazy and mixed up seemed to sum it up perfectly. But that night, sitting beside my mother, high on cocaine, revelation paid me a visit. Looking into her face and hearing her voice throughout my life, I was able to put the pieces together. Self-preservation was not the primary instinct. Nothing about that night in the Hollywood Hills was about self-preservation. We were lemmings looking for bragging rights to run off of a higher cliff. People don't seek survival. Even if they do, it's not the primary instinct. It's an afterthought. Survival is not what we long for. It never has been. Transcendence is the primary instinct. More than safety, more than happiness, we are overcome by the desire to reach beyond ourselves, even if it means our destruction. We seek transcendence through sex, drugs, God, electric guitars, poetry, alcohol, pornography, superheroes, ballet, barbecue, zombies, trampoline, yoga, skydiving, Santa Claus, cafeterias, and the poor man's form of transcendence, lying. Anything to reach beyond, because as my mother said, your life is your life, and we want that life to be as big as it can be. Where does this instinct for transcendence come from? There was a romantic notion that arose in the 60s when popular science collided with casual drug use. It was reflected in song and poetry and graduation addresses that all of us are made of stardust. In a broad scientific sense, it's true. Nobel Prize winner Dr. Steven Weinberg pointed out that the early universe was only made of three elements, hydrogen, helium, lithium, in the furnaces of supernova. New elements were formed that eventually became carbon, that eventually became us. If our original father was some sort of cosmic explosion, is the history of that event still imprinted in us? Is transcendence our imitation of the early universe spinning out new elements? Is this search the reason why we see chaos? Or is it just the reason why we end up with children? There are two periods in our life we can never remember, and I'm not counting freshman year in college. We can't remember our infancy, and we're usually impaired through old age. But we have the opportunity to experience these times. We relive our early years through our children and our final years through our parents. 
These are the lessons of the unknown years. Age diminished my parents physically. My father lost his sight. Arthritis made any type of exercise painful. My mother developed Alzheimer's. We lost her in pieces. But for them both, something essential remained. Visiting home became like walking past a familiar bit of coastline where only the hardest rock remained. Dad has always been concerned about his deteriorating physical condition to a point. He would take any medicine. He would submit to any horrific treatment. But he would never follow his doctor's orders afterwards, especially if it meant bed rest or more dependency. Dad's stubbornness has become his defining element. He always taught us that the only thing you should bet on is yourself. In his last years, he's put his willpower on the line against all of nature. He still plays each day fearlessly as if he's betting with the house's money. Mom's terrible decline also illuminated something essential. In her last few years, her world became smaller and smaller. Whenever I would tell her stories from the past about school or the Dangerous Animals Club or her visiting me in the Hollywood Hills, her eyes would fill with fear. She would search my face for some kind of forgiveness and would say quietly, I don't remember that, Stephen. I don't remember that at all. Despite the unrelenting disease, on my last visit to Dallas before her final heart attack, Mom told me a story. It was a story I had never heard before. My mother was the youngest person of a large family. Her eldest sister, Esther, was a school teacher who did most of the child-rearing in their home. Mom said that whenever she was at a turning point in her life, Esther would say, Junie, it's time to take a walk. Mom and Esther would walk down the road together and talk. Sometimes the walks were long, sometimes they were short, but by the end of the walk, a decision was made. I asked Mom what were some of the things she decided with Esther. Mom looked somewhere in the past and found the light too dim to see. She shook her head and said, It's too long ago now, Stephen. I can't remember, but they were all important decisions. Esther would say, Junie, let's go for a walk and my life would change. I found it significant that even though my mother couldn't remember the events of her life, she could remember the moments of making the decisions that shaped her life. After her first heart attack, I saw her and Dad together. Dad was apologizing for anything he had done to hurt her feelings in the past. Mom kissed him and said, Don't be silly. You are my sweetheart. And I love you forevermore. Forevermore. I thought that was unusually poetic for Mom, and I was right. She was referencing the poem Bobby Shafto that she had learned sometime in grade school. Bobby Shafto's gone to sea, silver buckles on his knee. He's my love forevermore, forevermore, my bonnie Bobby Shafto. Out of so much that was gone, my mother could still build a bridge to what was left. Through my parents, I learned that we are not the sum of the pieces that are still standing after the onslaught of years. Our essence lies in how we put the pieces of what's left into new shapes. If invention is the realm of what we call God, reinvention is the realm of man. 
my children taught me some unexpected lessons. When my firstborn Robert was crying in the delivery room, he seemed to communicate in some mysterious way that he was upset by how bright everything was. I shielded his eyes with my hand. He stopped crying. He looked at me curiously, and in that look, I could see he was completely there. He was all wisdom, no facts. It reminded me of a story in the Talmud that just before a baby is born, an angel teaches it everything there is to know. At the moment of birth, the angel touches the baby's lips and it forgets everything. The baby cries at birth for the lost knowledge. We spend the rest of our lives relearning and trying to remember what the angel taught us. The little indentation on our top lip known in trivia games is the philtrum, is the impression left by the angel's finger. Robert told his first joke at six weeks of age. Okay, right. He didn't tell a joke. He couldn't talk. He stuck his thumb up in the air and laughed. So I stuck my thumb up too, and he laughed again. We stuck our thumbs up one more time, and for some reason, I found this incredibly hilarious, and we laughed together. There's a lesson in comedy buried somewhere in those thumbs. Maybe it was for stopping for a moment facing the expanding universe to make a statement, a statement about thumbs. Maybe that's what made it funny. But it was clear that humor was not a learned thing. It was fundamental. The sense of irony is born in us. Maybe it's the natural result of mixing existential awareness with a short attention span. Two of my most profound lessons came courtesy of my youngest son, William. When I went back to Broadway in 2002, I was facing a challenge you never think about in acting class, separation from my family. I could only follow the lives of Anne and my boys over the telephone. On Monday, and I recall the day because it's important to the story, I talked to William after school. He was eight years old in the second grade. I asked him how his day was. He said he was learning how to play chess. I told him that sounded nice. There are a lot of good things about chess. Never gets old. Doesn't require AA batteries. That Friday, he called me and said he lost in the finals of his school's chess tournament. So I'm trying to make sense of this information. I said, you were learning how to play chess on Monday. He said, yes, Daddy. I learned how to play on Monday. And you lost in the finals on Friday. Yes, Daddy. They didn't tell me the rules change in the finals. When you touch a piece in the finals, you have to move it. They didn't tell me that. Next time, I'll win. Which he did. Several times. At several tournaments. He became friends with another young chess wizard. This boy was William's age and was ranked 250th in the country. If William had a good game, he could beat him. They became fast friends. They spent all of their afternoons playing chess together. It should be noted, at this time, William couldn't read. Schoolwork was painfully difficult. Anne and I discovered he had dyslexia. We had no idea what to do, and I was thrilled that his success at chess gave him a feeling of confidence that school couldn't give him. I asked him on the phone why he was so good at chess. He said, I could see the board, Daddy. I can see everything. 
I can see where I want people to move, and I can make a move there. He continued playing in tournaments. His friend was trying to encourage William to play on the national circuit. They could travel to different cities together and play chess. William asked me if he could do that. <laughs> From my apartment 2,500 miles away, I said, of course, honey, whatever you want. I could feel Anne's eyes rolling on the other end of the line. The chess tour never happened. Not long afterwards, William's friend's life turned tragic. His father, who suffered from depression, committed suicide. William spent time with him when he could, but he told me he wasn't going to chess tournaments anymore. He never wanted to play against his friend again. He said he didn't want to take the chance of winning and making him sad. He said he had enough sadness for the rest of his life. Our culture is filled with the mythology of the hero or heroine that competes under arduous circumstances and becomes a winner. There isn't much ink given to the chess game that didn't happen. William taught me how eloquent the silence of empathy can be. This episode became more potent when Anne and I discovered what a ferocious competitor William was. He was on the track team at his high school. William was dedicated. He was the fastest runner on his team, fastest ever at his school. And it was no secret that his school is not one of the big threats in the league. It happened at a meet near the end of the season. William had finished his two events and was starting his cool down. His coach told him one of the boys was feeling sick and he wanted William to take his place and run in the final event, the 4x440 relay. William took off his sweats and started warming up again. In the 440 relay, each school has a four-man team. Each runner has to complete a full lap around the track and pass the baton off to the next runner. William was running in the anchor position last. Five schools competed. The race started. William's school grabbed on to last place and hung on tight. By the time the first-place team passed their baton to the second runner, it was clear that unless William's school had discovered the secret of time travel, they were going to come in dead last. When the third runner from William's team took the baton, the first-place school crossed the finish line to the cheers of their fans. Then the second-place team crossed. Then the third. The runners from the three teams that finished were congratulating one another and were deep into their Gatorade while William was still standing at the starting line waiting for the baton. It was the last race of the evening. Parents were packing up their coolers and headed for the exits. The runner for the fourth place school was about 200 yards ahead of our runner. He shouted out across the stadium, Give me a reason! Just give me a reason to run! Don't quit! The runner from the fourth place team handed off. William was left alone at the starting line. He jumped up and down to stay loose. He twitched and shook his hands like runners do. His teammate gave it everything he had. He was exhausted. He came around into the last straightaway. William reached out for the baton. The handoff came. William took off. It was like a roadrunner cartoon. It was like an Atlas rocket taking off from Cape Canaveral. The force of his kick echoed through the stadium. The other runner was still 200 yards ahead of William. William powered into the first turn. It was electric. Parents stopped heading for the exits. They turned and watched. Runners from the other team stopped and watched. The stadium grew quiet. 
except for Anne and myself and the few brave parents from our school that remained. We were screaming our heads off. William was catching up to the fourth place runner. It was in the final straightaway. William went into overdrive. He had all but erased the huge lead the other school had. The other boy held on. William lost by a couple of steps. The crowd cheered. The runners from the other school surrounded William and congratulated him. I was so proud. William wasn't concerned about losing. He was concerned about not giving it his best. Moments like that continued to teach. The next year, we went back to the first track meet of the season. Stands were packed. William walked out onto the field to run the mile. He jumped up and down, began his twitching. Some parents from another school were sitting behind Anne and me. They pointed to William and said to one of their friends, Watch that kid on the end. He has a kick you won't believe. I saw him in a race last year. There's no quit in him. Who would think you could take a lesson about winning from a losing effort? The lessons of the unknown years might hold the answer. Robert was a wild man when he was a baby. We couldn't discipline him with punishment or we would end up in jail. All we could do was give him a treat if he behaved well and not give it to him if he tried to kill us in our sleep. His treats would be anything from a trip to the park or me reading him an extra book at bedtime. One day we were walking to the park and he turned particularly awful. He started throwing rocks at pedestrians. He had a very good arm for a two-year-old, so I had to take it seriously. I took away his trip to the park. We turned around and headed home. He began crying. He begged me to give the park back to him. He would be good. I told him I would give him a second chance. We were on our way again. We reached the park and Robert was laughing and playing, but the temptation of mayhem was too great. He picked up a handful of sand and threw it at another toddler. That was it. I told him he had to go home. He fell on the ground crying. Please, Daddy, no, please. I said, no, 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 I gave you a second chance. I know, Daddy, he said. I need another second chance. I stopped in my tracks. Robert taught me what I've been looking for my whole life. That day was more powerful from any lesson I could learn from a teacher who didn't believe in me or from a mother who did. It was more truth than the straight line I could draw between a father and a son who would never quit. Robert taught me the essence of what we all want. Another second chance. It was the lesson taught to us by the angels before we forgot who we were. I can see clearly now the rain is gone I can see all the obstacles in my way Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind It's gonna be a bright sunshiny day it's gonna be a bright, sunshiny day. That was Another Second Chance, a series of stories by actor Stephen Tobolowski, and you're listening to The Tobolowski Files. Stephen, would you like to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet or in real life? <laughs> I think on the internet, I'm on Facebook at... Uh, 
What is my Facebook address, David? Facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. And at Twitter, I'm at at Tobolowsky. And you, you want to get... spell that for people just in case they don't know? Yeah, it is S-T-E-P-H-E-N, and then T is in Tom, O-B is in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, the Russian spelling. And you could find me at my email at stephentobolowsky at gmail.com. And a shout-out to you folks in New Zealand. I'm coming your way, believe it or not, to Auckland, New Zealand. I'm going to be live at the Classic Theater Friday, December 27th at 8.30. So if you're in Auckland or anywhere in that area of New Zealand, come on by. I'm going to do a new story. Awesome. I've been to New Zealand. It is an absolutely beautiful place. I hope you have safe travel, Stephen. Uh, but well, hopefully and- we'll, have, we'll have a new episode of the Tobolowski Files before then. Yep. But uh, in the meantime, if you're looking for my work, you can find me at DaveChen.net and at DaveChensky on Twitter. That's DaveChenSKY. And uh, I think that's going to do it for us today here on the Tobolowski Files. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, thanks to SlashFilm.com for making this podcast possible. We'll see you guys later. Adios. It's going to be a bright, sunshiny day. Oh, it's going to be a bright, sunshiny day. Yeah.